And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, for they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes came together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Cephas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by the means that this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Are you guys ready to get into God's Word? All right, you are in Acts by now. If you're new, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at New Heights Church, and we are delighted and thrilled that you are, have chosen to worship uh, with us this morning. So we love the Bible here. So we do it verse by verse, and, and I'm going to do something a little special today. I know some of you are going to think, wow, he's just cruising through the text today. That's because we're going to really focus on prayer time today. So as I get started, you know, this last week was, it was a great week. It was a fun week. And have you ever been in a situation where something happened differently? There you are, Diane Phillips. Happy birthday. You are here. Okay. Have you ever celebrated, or sorry, my mind's... <laughs> celebrating with Diane. Woo! Have you ever done something and thought uh, the outcome would turn out different? Right? So this last week I had the, the amazing privilege of going turkey hunting. Yeah, and I went with <laughs> really high expectations. I was excited. Uh, got to go out with Pastor Enos and Don Kist up into a cabin in Kentucky, and we got to do some turkey hunting. And on, I went up and we hunted, what was it, all, all day, I think, on Thursday, and then came back Thursday. I wanted to pick up my son uh, after school on Friday and take him up with me while I was picking up Asher, Pastor Enos, who, a.k.a. the turkey Turkey uh, Slayer. All right, I don't know where he is, but man, he's like the Rambo of turkey hunting. So now he's got two trophies. 
two trophies he's going to be able to put on his wall, and they're going to have a turkey for Thanksgiving, and it's not Butterball. So I'm going to say it as hard as it is. Congratulations, Pastor Enos, wherever you're at. Yes. And then I'm going to finish my story. (laughs) So I went up, and I was taking Asher up, and he had asked if, Dad, did you get a turkey? I said, no, we never saw Tom, so that's, you know, that's why. And he said, is there ever a time that you go hunting and you don't get anything? And I said, yeah, yeah, that, that happens a lot in hunting. And he says, well, I'm just going to pray that you don't miss. And I said, well, Asher, it's not that your dad misses, okay? If we see... If my, my Alexa's talking to me. If we see a, ter- if we see a Tom, your dad's going to get it, okay? He doesn't miss. He's going to get a Tom. So you need to pray that a Tom comes. That's what you need to pray, not that your dad misses. So early uh, Saturday morning, I'm in the shooting house with Don Kist and my son. And sure enough, I mean, we were only in there like 45 minutes. Don, who's an amazing turkey caller. So if you ever need somebody to do a turkey call for you, Don is your man. So he brings in this big old Tom. I mean, really, really big, and I'm just excited, and, and he, he gets to about 30 yards, and Don keeps telling me, you're going to get a better shot, you're going to get a better shot. He comes, and he attacks this Jake decoy that we have out there. He jumps on the decoy, and I've got a shot at 15 yards. I'm already celebrating, because this, this Tom's bigger than the one Enos got, so I am just, I'm thrilled, I'm excited, I take my shot. The turkey runs. I've never seen that before. Usually it falls, you know. It runs back into the woods. I tell Don, I'm, I think I probably hit it. It's probably running off to the woods to die. Don says, no, no I, uh, Pastor, I don't, I don't think you got it. <laughs> he goes, that turkey was running like it was a track star. So... You know, we're, after Don gets out, he goes and puts the decoys back up, and we're just sitting in there. It's kind of somber, and Asher hasn't said anything. It's real quiet. I feel like a 10-year-old boy again. I want to cry because I can't believe I missed. And Asher all of a sudden says, so wait a minute. Does this mean we don't get anything because Dad missed? Don says, well, it's about the experience, you know. You're taking home an experience with you. And Asher says, but we don't get meat? all because dad missed his shot? Is Pastor Enos going to share his meat with us? Then I'm saying, Asher, get out of the shooting. Get out of this. I'm not taking you ever again. So we're driving, driving back. We drop Enos off, and, and we get into the house, and Asher says, hey, dad, he goes, you know, I once read something. I said, don't do that. It's dangerous, Asher. <laughs> said, I once, I once read about Michael Jordan for a school project, and it said that Michael Jordan missed 9,000 shots. And he goes, so you know what? He goes, keep your head up, Dad. You're going to miss 8,999 more shots. I said, well, Asher, he's shooting a basketball. It's a lot you know, easier. To, I don't even have 8,000 more shots left in me. And uh, I said, I won't miss. If, it, if I get a shot again, Asher, I'm not going to miss. And he just put his hand on me. He says, Dad, you'll get another chance. Maybe Don can get it to come in at five feet <laughs> or five yards. Have you ever had something go the way you didn't see it going? <laughs> I mean, I truly thought I was going to be bringing home a bird. We were going to be able to have it for Thanksgiving. It was going to be special. I was going to get a picture with Asher. And uh, even to top it off, the whole time I'm teasing uh, Enos the whole week, telling him I'm going to get a bigger bird. And even my son was teasing him, Dad's going to get a bigger bird. It was like the most humbling thing for me to watch my son go up and pat Pastor Enos on the back and say, well, congrats, you're the better hunter. <laughs> Today, we're in this text, and Peter and John have just done a good thing. 
they've shared the gospel. Not only that, but they've prayed over somebody. He's, he's got healed. And there's, there's a, some consequences here. Now, often as a pastor, I'm always blown away. For some reason, I experience it more in the West than I do in other, in other countries. But I experience Christians getting upset that their life didn't turn out the way that they thought it would when they came to Jesus. And especially when it comes to witnessing. Well, I witnessed to him, and he, he, didn't, he didn't embrace what I was saying, and so they quit and give up. And so today we're looking at this where we're looking at this, this encounter that the disciples had with this lame, crippled man. He gets healed. It's an amazing thing. And then there's these consequences right away. And that's what we're kind of looking at today. So here, I want to recap real quick. On the day of Pentecost, we remember that there was definitely this physical, supernatural phenomenon that occurred. Uh, the divided tongues as a fire was over the heads of 120 followers of Christ that had gathered in that upper room. It was something incredible for sure, something they had never seen before or experienced. It was the birth of the church. And the physical fire that they had witnessed on the day of Pentecost, it's, it's no longer physically visible. Now what you have is the fire that is in their hearts, okay? And the Holy Spirit lit a flame that day, and that flame is now spreading, and that flame is now spreading today still. Um, but their hearts, the disciples' hearts, are burning with passion and with zeal. And where we find ourselves this morning is after this supernatural miracle occurs, after Peter's amazing sermon he preached, uh, we find ourselves in this other season of church history. We've read about the birth of the church, and now we're going to read about the persecution of the church. This is the first recorded persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ, post-Christ on earth. Okay, he's physically gone. He's ascended. The disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. God does this amazing miracle through, and I emphasize through the disciples, and now they're on center stage because it's drawn all kinds of attention, and not all of it is positive attention. And here's the truth. You and I are going to have to suffer if we are followers of Jesus. Few amens. <laughs> Few amens. It may not get us real excited, but it's the truth. You guys know Newton's third law of action and reaction, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Do you know that this law applies to us spiritually as, as well? When God does something amazing, the devil is going to respond. So God has called his followers to preach the gospel, and this always, always invited great persecution. All right? For the next 300 years, the church of Jesus Christ would experience some of the worst, most notable persecution in its history. And as the church moves forward in the book of Acts, the opposition just gets thicker. And this is what we're going to see all throughout the entire book of Acts that the church moves forward, but it does so in the face of some serious persecution. We don't like suffering. Okay? Who in their right mind would want to sign up for per- persecution? In fact, when we give altar calls, <laughs> most preachers aren't promoting the suffering part of Christianity. Okay, how many of you were told this? Jesus loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Confess your sins to Jesus and he's gonna forgive you and then he'll take you to heaven to live with him forever. How many of you would like to become a Christian? How many of you, that was how the gospel was presented? And by the way, everything I just said was true. Everything that I just said was true. Oftentimes though, what we forget to tell those that we're trying to win over to Jesus is the time between now and your entrance into heaven. The, the time between give your life to Jesus and go to heaven to be with Jesus. Because there are certain parts of the Bible that are difficult to read. There are certain parts of the Bible, it's just a hard pill to swallow. Okay? You know the part that says some people will hate you? 
That saying yes to Jesus, it may cost you everything. It may cost you your job. It may cost you your family. Some parts of your Christian walk are going to be extremely painful. That part usually doesn't make it into the call to salvation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, as most of you know, today the church, the church is very much persecuted still today. I know we live in America and we are blessed, but I have traveled to countries where they are, they are being persecuted for their faith. And persecution has been taking place from the very beginning of the church. We've seen it on the news. We see extreme religions carrying out beheadings of believers. We're seeing many doing some of the same exact things that the Romans did to the Christians in the first 300 years. And, and even though we're not experiencing that, in our, that type of persecution in our country, we're still seeing persecution take place in America. America is plunging toward an increasingly anti-Christian future. Okay, And I'll say that there's, there's a marked difference between the treatment of Christians in many countries abroad and what we're facing here at home because I think we still enjoy broad religious protections under the law and the intensity of what we face here in, in, some, in many ways pales in comparison to the depths of persecution suffered by some of the followers of Jesus around the world. But I can't deny that, that Christians here in America are, are being persecuted. I can't deny that. We are. We're experiencing persecution. Americans today who put their faith in Jesus experience discomforts, inconveniences, and sometimes even social, uh, being social outcasts. Okay? These instances just don't rise to the level of the horror that so many of our Christian brothers and sisters face every day in different parts of the world. But it's still persecution and it's still legitimate. And I would say the way that we're going right now, I wouldn't be surprised in my lifetime if I do see some of the, that persecution in this country. All right? So this is what we're talking about today. Suffering, persecution, opposition. All the fun stuff, right? Amen. How many of you are excited to dig in? (laughs) Because in this passage, Peter and John experienced persecution for doing the right thing. They obeyed God. They did what God told them to do. And then they faced a consequence. I want you to think about this passage before we begin to unpack our text today. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire a godly life. Do you desire to live a godly life? I, I mean, this says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. I desire to live a godly life. This is a desire of mine. I, I want to be godly. But it says those who do what? Those who desire to live a godly life will be what? Will stink. This goes against so much of what I hear today because I hear a whole lot of be blessed, right? That's the prominent teaching of today. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be blessed, right? Are you broke? Come to Jesus. Are you sick? Come to Jesus. Hey, whatever you need, just come to Jesus. He's going to bless you. He's going to give you whatever you want. All you have to do is just come to Jesus, Sounds good, and people sign up for it, but they, they get discouraged pretty quick when they realize Jesus isn't their Santa Claus. It's not how this works. When life gets hard, they get mad, and they get angry at God. Some will even say, this isn't what I thought Jesus was. 
can't tell you how many times as a lead pastor I work with people who, who tell me they come in angry and mad at God because in their mind they have this perception of what God needs to be. They're not getting their perception of what God is from the Bible. It's coming through their cultural lens and how they perceive that what God is supposed to be. And if he doesn't fit their description of what God's supposed to be, they get mad and they get angry, right? I mean, here it is, God's word saying, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you will be blessed. You will be blessed, but you will be persecuted. And by blessing, I mean this. Number one, the presence of God seen and enjoyed in the face of Jesus, right? Number two, covering us with mercy because of all our sins. Number three, calling us his children. Number four, comforting us for all pain and loss in this world. And number five, everything set right in our souls and in the social order of the new world. This is our great reward. That's it. This is what it means to be truly blessed. Not necessarily you're going to have lots of money. You're not going to ever have any kind of issues arise in your life. You're going to live a life that's going to be all peachy. You're never going to run into any kinds of issues. That's, that's, that's not what Jesus means when he says you'll be blessed. Now look with me at verse one. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. Now, by the way, this refers to the police force of the temple precinct, okay? The captain together with the priests and the Sadducees, they all came together to arrest Peter and John. It says, came upon them. Again, the emphasis in the original language indicates that they, they stopped and they seized Peter and John immediately. They must have probably thought, enough of this. We've had enough. They put a stop to it right away and they grabbed them. Physically grabbed them and dragged them off. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Can I pause for a minute? Can I just, can I say this, that the gospel upsets people? It just does. When you open your mouth and you proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ only, you're being, you're being somebody who is, is being a separatist. You're being too uh, definitive. You're, you're, you're going to be labeled as someone who's causing problems. How dare you have such a narrow mind? Okay? So many Christians today, are, or, or so-called Christians today, are wanting to take this broad spectrum of all people are good and all people find their own way. And so many people are sincere and there are so many ways to God. I remember at 16 years old watching the Larry King show and I watched six ministers in America on a panel board answer questions to Larry King and anytime you go on a, a public television show, you better be ready to give a good answer because they're, they're loaded and ready to go to make you look silly. And God bless those pastors that go on those TV shows. But all five of them, he goes through the line and he says, are you really gonna tell me that there is only one way to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ? And all five of them, said pretty much no, that there could, be di- there could be other ways to heaven until they got to John MacArthur who picked up his Bible and said, I don't know if we're reading the same book. I, I don't know if we're reading the same book. And again, Larry says, so, so Reverend MacArthur, are you telling me that Jesus is the only way? He said, I'm not telling you, God's telling you. Jesus is the only way. John MacArthur once said this, if the truth offends, then let it offend. People have been living their whole lives in offense to God. Let them be offended for a while. Look, it was no different in Peter's day than it is today. The gospel is offensive. Here's why they were offended. 
in this particular situation. The Sadducees were offended that Peter and John were teaching people that Jesus uh, resurrected from the dead. That ticked them off. Why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in that. There was no hope for eternal life. That's why they were called the Sadducees. Come on, come on. <laughs> it wasn't mine, I stole it. They didn't believe in the afterlife they didn't, they, or the resurrection at all. And so when we evangelize, you need to understand this. When we, you and I evangelize, the last thing that we should be worried about is having the gospel offend people. Now don't put words in my mouth. Listen to what I just said. The last thing we should be worried about is the gospel offending someone. Man, you think about man's inherent nature and what the gospel implies. People are going to get offended. Let them be offended. Now, of course... We don't want them to be offended, but we, we do, or, or, but we need not to be surprised when they do. I'm not saying go out and, and really, I'm telling you to allow the gospel. Are you listening to me? The gospel. I'm not telling, that, telling you that you can go out and offend people. Because a lot of times, instead of letting the gospel offend, we ourselves do the offending by how we speak and how we interact with other people. I'm not telling you to go do that. I'm not telling you to get on Facebook and tell people they're stupid. Man, so many times I've seen that on threads, Christians embarrassing the church because they'll get on a thread and say, I don't know how you can be so stupid. Now, you're being offensive now. The gospel is going to offend somebody. You don't need to offend them. The gospel itself is going to offend somebody. We don't have to get on Facebook and say how stupid the world is, how dumb they are, how ignorant. That's not our job. (laughs) Don't do that. I'm saying the gospel itself is going to offend people. You don't need to be worried about the gospel offending people. You need to be worried about you offending people. You need to make sure you're presenting the gospel in a loving way. But just know the gospel is going to offend people. Verse 3, it says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they're arrested. Why? Because they're teaching dangerous ideas. They're saying that Jesus rose from the dead and and that went directly against their beliefs. And and now most of the time, something like this would, you know, I I don't know, scare you, right? It would be a terrifying experience for Peter and John. They're arrested by some really angry officials. They're handled roughly. In fact, the New King James Version says they laid hands on them. There were threats that were made. Some of you are saying, well, you're implying that. I don't see it in the text. If you look at Acts chapter 421, it implies this implies that there were further threats. Well, if there's further threats, here's what that tells me, that there must have been prior threats, okay? If you keep preaching Jesus, we're gonna arrest you and beat you. If you keep preaching, we're gonna harm your family. Remember what we did to Jesus, we'll do the same thing to you. Now keep this in mind. At this time, the movement of believers of Jesus, it was pretty, it was pretty weak at this time. They really didn't have a huge amount of followers. They were very inexperienced when it came to leadership. They were told not to fight back by Jesus. And they were opposed by institutions that had existed for hundreds of years. Political organizations that had a whole lot of power. And these political organizations are telling them, shut up. Shut up or else. Verse 4 says, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So listen, they had enemies and preaching the gospel brought those enemies out. But many of those who heard believed. Don't, don't lose sight of that part. Don't lose sight of this verse. I need a pause for a minute because this verse is powerful. This verse shows us what we live for. 
I understand whenever I share the truth, even to a congregation, that not everybody in attendance today is going to agree with what I have to share from the Bible. They're not going to agree with the teaching of Jesus. I get that. I understand that when I share to an unbelieving world that a lot will absolutely oppose what the Bible has to say. I know that. I understand that. I'm gonna he- I, I do hear things like this all the time. Your truth doesn't have to be my truth. What you believe is so divisive. You're ignorant. You're narrow-minded. And to many, the message of salvation is only going to upset them. But, but, here's what this verse tells me. That some... Some are going to believe and some are going to hear and believe. That's why we do what we do. We do it for the some who are going to hear and the some who are going to believe. Do you remember when Jesus talked about the seed that was sown? The enemy immediately comes. He robs the seed that was sown by the wayside. Other seed only lasts temporarily, temporarily but dries up whenever there's a hard time or there's persecution. Other seed, other people grow for a while, but the cares of this world choke them out. But then Jesus said there is the soil that is good. There's a heart that is good. And the seed of the word of God is sowing in some people's hearts and it's taking root and they bear fruit. A good root always brings good fruit. And you need, you need to see that truth in this story today. Don't focus on the ones who are going to reject the message you share. Don't focus on the ones who are going to fall by the wayside. Focus on the ones who will grab a hold of the truth. That is what this verse is telling us. Some believed. Some believed. And this is the pastor, every pastor's favorite part of the story. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. Every pastor loves that. Remember, Luke's already recorded some numbers, okay? On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon. Those who believed were around 3,000. Luke records that. And now Luke records another number. He says 5,000. You know what this tells me? This isn't just a number. These are souls. And so Luke cares enough to let us know the number. The Holy Spirit let this happen in our church. I pray, God, that we would see new people come in here who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear about your mercy and your grace, and we can give higher numbers next year, not just because we're filling seats, but we're, we're, we're giving higher numbers of people who have experienced a life-changing experience with the living God. Verse 5 says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Now let me tell you something. This is a scene of power and intimidation. Okay, the same group of leaders had recently condemned Jesus to death. They wanted them to know that they had the power to do the same thing to Peter and John. It's kind of like, I remember when I was in, in uh, junior high, I decided to to run for uh, class president or something like that, and I had to run against the kid who had been at this school for his entire time, so from kinder- kindergarten all the way up to sixth grade, and he had literally, whatever age it was, you can start being class president, he had got it every single year. And when he heard I was gonna run, he let me know, this is my school, and I don't lose. And I said, okay. And he had all of the sports players, these big, strong guys. And I remember the very first meeting that we came, he brought all of them to the meeting. And they all just sat there and they, with their arms crossed and they looked at me. It was a scene of power and intimidation. He wanted me to know, you're not going to win, but if you do, it's going to be painful. <laughs> you're going to pay the price. He beat me anyway. 
But that's what this is. That's what's happening here. Satan, listen, Satan is a master of using fear and intimidation to shut down and silence believers. Because he knows the true authority that you and I have to resist him in Jesus. But he also knows that many believers don't really understand that authority. They don't understand the authority that they possess. And he wants to paralyze you with fear. He wants to see if he can intimidate you and stop you from moving forward in the call of God in your life. Verse 6, with Annas the high priest and uh, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, this is a loaded question because in their scripture in the Old Testament, they were commanded when anybody comes in and does something notable like a miracle or a sign or a wonder, you ask that person what name they do this in. And if that person is leading you away from the name of God and from worshiping God, that person is a false prophet and he's to be removed. And by removed, I'm saying taken care of. You know, like, being taken to the train station, okay? If you're still not catching what I'm saying, I'm talking they're going to lose their lives, all right? That's what they're doing here. And they're setting up Peter and John. They're, they're ready to hand out the, the guilty verdict, and Peter and John know it. They know it well. They just watch what happened to Jesus. They know what's coming up. They know what they're being set up. And that's why verse 8 is so powerful, because look at this. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit again. And the evidence, the evidence of him being filled with the Holy Spirit is supernatural boldness. And the fact, and the fact that the Holy Spirit is speaking through Peter directly to the heart of the matter. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You want, you want evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Right there. You stand up and you've got a boldness like you have never had before. And I want you to know something. The filling of the Holy Spirit that Peter experienced in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 was not a one-time event. It was something God wanted to continue doing in their lives. Okay, Peter was outside. I want you to remember the night that Jesus stood trial before the same people that Peter's standing before. Peter was outside in the courtyard trying to warm up by a fire, right? And he was denying Jesus Christ to a little girl. A little slave girl. That's what Peter was doing. Now Peter isn't outside the courtyard of the high priest. No, he's inside. And is he being a coward? No, he's doing just the opposite. He's being bold, not timid, not denying, but he is declaring the works of Jesus. You see, when a fisherman stands up to the most powerful figure in the city, that's bold. That's bold. He's a different man. Why? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter, after seeing the resurrected Lord and being filled with the Holy Spirit, now he's got the courage to speak the truth. That's the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love it when Beth Grant stood before the general council of the Assemblies of God, all of these Pentecostal ministers, and she said, don't show me your Pentecostal in here. You go show me your Pentecostal out there. You're really filled with the Holy Spirit. You're making disciples. You're sharing Jesus Christ boldly. It doesn't matter what you're doing up here. You could be dancing all up and down the aisle. You could be waving the flags. You could even blow the shofar. You want to show me that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, walk out those doors and make disciples of men. That's the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
somebody who is bold in, in proclaiming the gospel truth. So Jesus, he had made Peter and all these other disciples a promise. Do you remember the promise? He said, if you, if you don't worry, or, or he said, don't worry about how or what you're gonna speak when you get taken before these rulers, these elders, for it will be given to you in that hour what to say for the spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will give you the words. It's what's happening here. We're witnessing that in this verse. Look at what Peter says to them. He said, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a, a good deed done to a crippled man, in other words, are we, are we actually on trial for this? <laughs> by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Again, I love that Peter and John don't take the credit. A minister of Jesus Christ deflects the credit because it belongs to Jesus and only Jesus. Only Jesus. We've got all kinds of books. You go in, you go in the Christian bookstore, you'll find all kinds of books written about how great these guys were who built these big, huge churches and did all these incredible things. Guess what, though? The book should be about Jesus because he does incredible things. That's why he took some uneducated fishermen and did something amazing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that some of us don't possess good leadership skills or that God has given us gifts and we use them to, to build the kingdom, but all the glory goes to Jesus. All the glory goes to Jesus. So he says, if you're actually putting us on trial for healing a guy, let it be known. Power comes from Jesus. And then verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The way they built buildings back then, the cornerstone was extremely important. Still is today, but back then especially. Okay, the whole shape of the building, the dimensions, how tall it could be, it was framed by the strength of that stone. So then the conclusion of this whole message found in verse 12, look with me, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now we're going to come back to that in a little bit in the conclusion. But look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. When you consider that Luke was a friend of Peter's. Luke, the guy writing this, was friends with Peter and John, and he was a doctor. So what does that tell you? He was smart. <laughs> I've never met a doctor who's not smart, thank God. <laughs> Doctors are smart people. And, and he's pretty much saying this. Yeah, my friends, they weren't, they weren't really the sharpest tools in the uh in the shed okay they're, they're not really that smart they're uneducated just your average joe and i wonder if peter when he read this later <laughs> when he read this epistle later was like come on man come on dude that's not cool why'd you have to put that in there why did you have to put it in there that me and john weren't educated <laughs> they're astonished they just they can't believe it literally they were amazed Stumped. They saw two things that didn't fit together. Then they saw the real explanation. What didn't fit together was that Peter and John's public boldness and their lack of education, it just didn't make sense. How could these two guys get up and do this? 
On the one hand, Peter and John, they were speaking with this straightforwardness, with confidence and with courage and with clarity. And they were doing this in the presence of people with power and esteem. Some real political clout here. The rulers and the elders and the scribes, it, it just, it simply stunned the authorities. These men spoke as though they had the authority on their side. But what made this boldness so incredible was that Peter and John, they weren't formally educated. They didn't have uh, this, this refinement of skill that came from courses and rhetoric. They didn't have any of that stuff. That's the point of verse 13. They were just, they were astonished. They were amazed. But they remembered that this Jesus who they're talking about, this guy that they tried to get rid of was just like that. If you go back, you look at John chapter 7, verse 15, it says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? All right, the same thing's happening here with Peter and John. They were all bold, they were straightforward, they were clear, and they had, they had insight into the things of God, even though they, they never had this education that these scribes had had. And so verse, verse 13 says at the end, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That kind of education was much more important than the customs and the standards of their time. To be with Jesus was more important than all the education and all the qualifications that the scribes had. The truth that knowing the Bible and a real relationship with Jesus is more important than formal education degrees has been proven in the lives of God's servants again and again and again. Okay, it's been proven true through guys like uh, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, William Carey, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Hudson Taylor. And please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that God doesn't use education. I love education. I went and paid a lot of money and invested into a seminary degree. I'm about to pay a lot more money and, and go get a doctorate of ministry. I believe in education. I do. God uses education too, Right? We got all kinds of examples in the Bible. God used Moses, Daniel, Paul. They're all biblical examples of guys that were educated. Uh, In our history, Augustine, Martin Luther, Billy Graham, those are just a few historical examples. It's just as wrong to think that formal education disqualifies someone for effective service as it is to think that it automatically qualifies someone for effective service. All right? I'm I'm not saying education is not important, but what I'm saying that the most important education is what these disciples had. They had been with Jesus. And that was something that was evident. They had been with Jesus. The number of people who claim to be Christians today has never been higher. Do you know that? And yet our moral and our spiritual climate has never been lower. You see, most people don't understand what it really means to be a Christian, to have this personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just raising your hand at Bible camp when you were young. For Peter and John, it was unmistakable. Even their enemies could see that Jesus Christ had profoundly impacted these men. My question today is, could a statement like that be said of you? Could it be said of you that you you have been with Jesus? You've been with Jesus. People can see it. All right, now what what we have seen, and I'm closing here, but don't worry, worship team. Give me me some time because it's a longer conclusion today. What we've seen here in these 13 verses is Peter and John fulfilling the great commission. We see them fulfilling their purpose. Did you know you have a purpose? Did you know you have a purpose? You have a purpose. That's to be a witness. A lot of times we get confused in our, what it means to be a witness. You know, we get confused in our desire to share faith with, with other people. We feel like we have the responsibility to bring them to Jesus Christ. 
Listen to me this morning. That's not your responsibility. That's God's. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel with our lips and our lives, knowing that it's God who's going to work in people's hearts to bring them to faith. Okay? We're to see ourselves simply as planters and waters who trust God to give the growth. In this sermon that Peter preaches, there's four things I want you to pick up on. I'm not preaching another message. There's four things. There's this boldness, there's this humility, a tenacity, and urgency. Right? Our witness should be characterized by that. Those same qualities, those same traits. Peter and John went reminding the religious leaders that they had killed Jesus. That took some guts. That was bold. A fact that they, they probably weren't really thrilled about sharing that fact. All right? Their boldness astonished the religious leaders. But their boldness didn't lead them to arrogance. They actually acted with incredible humility. Luke goes out of his way to point out that Peter and John, they, they weren't real smart, like I said. But they were men who had received salvation by grace. And those who receive grace know that they have zero ground. Listen to me. Zero ground for moral or intellectual superiority. If you meet an arrogant Christian, they aren't arrogant because they believe Christianity's claims too fervently. They're arrogant because they don't understand the message at all. It's a quote from J.D. Greer. Couldn't agree with him more. But you know this, humility also, it doesn't back down. That's not what it means to be humble. This is not what it means to be humble at all. A humble witness can still be a tenacious one. Because we, we're going to read next week about how Peter and John ignore some threats of imprisonment and even death. They ignore it. You can put us in prison, no problem. You can even take our lives, no problem. Where did this tenacity come from? The resurrection, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. That was that, that he was doing something to save people who could not save themselves. And when we believe that, we cling to our witness with grit in the face of opposition. If we really, truly believe in the resurrected Jesus, nothing can stop us from sharing our faith. Because not only will we cling to our witness, but we're going to be urgent to spread it because we recognize that only one name, only one name offers salvation. And the gospel was constantly on the apostles' lips. Everywhere they went, because they took the gospel's implications, deadly serious. That's why Peter said, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. You believe that, and you'll do something about the lostness that's all around you. You believe that, and you're going to be witnessing to your neighbor. You believe that, you're going to witness to the guy at Starbucks. You believe that, everybody who knows you is going to know what you believe. Because, I mean... You believe that? Church, New Heights Church, if we believe that, then we're going to have a movement on our hands. How else can you explain some backwoods, uneducated fishermen who, who were in prison half the time, spread their message across the entire known world, and we have Christianity today because of it? And again, I've talked to so many people about this, and they say, I want it, I want all of it, there's just one thing, I don't have the boldness that you talk about. I don't have the boldness that you talk about. Well, there's two. I jumped the gun. Let me, there's two things here. Some people that I've met who believe in Jesus and who believe he's the only way will say, I just struggle witnessing because sometimes I just think it's unfair. I've met Christians who believe this, okay? I remember in middle school, I thought the same thing. Dad, I would ask my dad over and over, Dad, I don't get it. Why is Jesus the only way? It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem fair, right? Because there's so many people, maybe they don't have access to this. But he would always say what's unfair is for those of us who know the gospel to not do all that we can to bring it to others. 
you would always flip the question on me, right? What if Jesus' claims are really true? What if the power of salvation, it's only found through him? Have you thought about the implications of that, right? Have you ever thought about your life in, in light of these kingdom priorities? Have you then, uh, will find yourself, if you do, you've thought about this, you're gonna find yourself being bold, humble, tenacious, and urgent in your witness, Because if this message is true, then it would be cruel for you not to do anything in your power to get the gospel to the lost people around you. Because listen, you were not saved for yourself. You were saved to bring the message of salvation to other people. Charles Spurgeon was once asked whether those who never hear the gospel can be saved. His response was amazing. He says, how can we who know the gospel be truly saved if we don't go to them? How can we be saved if we don't care about witnessing to other people? Church, you want to start a movement? You want to start a movement? That's how you start one. Think of the unlikelihood of this movement growing as large as it did. A bunch of fishermen in backwoods parts of this world who within a few days of this movement, they're being thrown in prison already. How in the world did these guys sweep the world? Because they believed the gospel and took its implications deadly serious. You want to start a movement, church? My question is, do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Some of you who say, well, it's not fair. This is something else. Again, I said this. It's not fair that everybody doesn't know. Listen, God owes nobody salvation. That any of us have access to it. That's an act of unspeakable grace. We don't deserve salvation. Not one of us. Nobody. Carl F.H. Henry says, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So here's, have you ever... And again, have you thought about your life in light of these, these spiritual uh, kingdom priorities? Have you thought about your life when it comes to saving people? When you stand before God and he says, what did you do with your life in light of these spiritual realities? Are you going to have a good answer for him? Some of you are saying, yeah, I want this. But again, I don't have the first thing you talked about. I don't have boldness. I don't have boldness. I don't have that. I'm here to tell you today that the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's for everyone. Jesus knew what you would need to go and fulfill his mission, to go and fulfill your purpose that he has for your life. I don't care if you're shy. God's telling you, I need you to proclaim the gospel. I don't care if you don't like really getting in any kind of conflict. God is saying, I have appointed you and called you to proclaim the gospel. You might say, but I just, I'm not that type of person. Yes, you are. God wants to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, give you a boldness so that you can go out it. I'm telling you, I have seen people in my own life who can't even get up on stage and talk for two minutes. That was my life, by the way. That was my story, by the way. I couldn't get up. I couldn't do it. I was 19 years old when I finally got through my entire first sermon. Let me tell you something. When God calls you, he is going to equip you. And everybody who calls on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has a calling on their life to go and proclaim the gospel. So the question is, are you doing that? Do you view your life as that? Because this is why I'm excited. I'll tell you, we're growing as a church. I won't lie about that. We are seeing more people come. Last week, I thought, man, that was... It was disappointing after Easter. We had all those people. Well, last week we were at 400 people in the house, almost. A little shy of 400. And you know what? I said, well, I didn't see them in the sanctuary. My staff said, yeah, it's because they're volunteering. They're catching the vision. You got a bunch of people signing up and volunteering in the kids. You got the Spanish church going. We're growing and that excites me. But here's what really excites me. Because I think we are on the verge of being a movement. 
I think we're on the verge of people who call New Heights Church their church being filled with the Holy Spirit and going out every day and experiencing things like Peter and John did. That's how we're going to grow as a church. Let me tell you something. The main event isn't Sunday. This is not it. This is not it. Ministry, real ministry, takes place outside those doors. It's going to take place with you. Why? Let me, let me talk to you moms and dads, lawyers and dentists, police officers, uh, teachers, whatever you are. You guys have the audience out there. I need the Holy Spirit to preach every... I do. I need it. But you guys are going out and you, are, you have the audience that is not saved. They don't know Jesus. You're surrounded by him every day. And the Holy Spirit wants to fill you every day. It's a reoccurring thing. You need it. It's not like you fill up your, gas, your, your car with gas and you say, man, I don't need to fill it up again. I filled it up last Tuesday. It's good to go. No, you need to keep filling up, right? You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can go out and do what God has called you to do. Because guess what? God died on the cross for that barista you work with. God died on that cross for the neighbor that's annoying you telling you that if your dog poops on his yard one more time, wait, wrong story. That's my story. That's not your story. God died on the cross for for the people that you are surrounded by every single day. And he's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can have the words to say to penetrate his heart. Because you can go, I went and got a, a master's degree from a seminary. I study all the time. And guess what? I'll have all the right answers. And sometimes it won't make a lick of a difference. But there have been times where I didn't think I did a good job at all explaining the gospel, but the Holy Spirit was at work and penetrated his heart. He did what I can't do. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna close today, and the worship team's gonna get back up here, and I want all of you, I don't care if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, I don't care if, it was, if you, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you experienced it last week. Guess what? You need it again. And I'm gonna invite all of you to come. We're gonna sing and praise, and we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to fill us up so that we can go out here and be Pentecostal. That's what I'm gonna pray. Are you ready? Father, we love you and praise you and worship you and adore you. God, it is a, a, an honor to be called your children. What a privilege it is to have this responsibility on our life, to go out and share the gospel. We know people are gonna get offended. We know that everybody's not gonna say yes, but just like this verse, there are those who will hear and who will accept and will experience salvation. And so God, I pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can become a movement, not a church, not an institution, but a movement of people whose lives have been radically transformed by what your son did on the cross. Just like the disciples who had experienced the resurrection of Jesus, who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, it changed their entire life. They had purpose and they had boldness. God, you've called all of us. Everyone in here who has said yes to Jesus has a call on their life. And I pray now that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit so we can see that happen. Bless this church, this community, this body of believers. Bless us in the way that we read about in the Bible not asking that we'd be blessed financially, we'd be blessed in any of those ways. I'm asking that you would bless us spiritually, that we'd be rich spiritually. God, that we would be proclaimers of your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.